So we are taking a break from your series in Philippians this week. Pastor Ryan, when he is back next week, will resume that study through Paul's letter to the Philippians. We're going to take a, a short detour this morning and check out this passage from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, this letter to the Ephesians was also written by the Apostle Paul, and it is a letter that develops one main theme, and this theme is summed up in the first chapter in the third verse, which we didn't read this morning, but I'm going to read for you because it's so significant for what we're talking about this morning. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. Places. So in short, the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter wished to overwhelm his readers and listeners and all of you today with the sheer goodness, kindness, mercy, benevolence, generosity, magnanimity, and above all, love of God. And far from being some abstract concept of blessing, God has concretely and manifestly offered to you the fullness and the abundance of all of heaven's blessings in the person of his own eternally begotten son, made man and crucified for our sakes, Jesus Christ. And now the resurrected, glorified Jesus, who presently sits at the right hand of God in the heavenly places, is the precise spring and fountain and river of all of God's blessings to you this morning. We are here recipients of God's blessings in the gospel, not merely of material, ephemeral things that are here today and gone tomorrow, but of things divine and eternal, unspeakable and filled with glory to be received by faith alone. And today, we're going to look at just one of these spiritual blessings, the heart of these spiritual blessings that have been poured out to us through the grace of God in the gospel of Christ, namely, our salvation from death to life. Our salvation from death to life. This is the central theme of this text that was just read, and we're going to examine it in order together, verse by verse, following three movements. And this can uh, serve as an outline if that's helpful to you. Uh, first, we're going to see that we were dead in sin, and then we'll see that we were made alive with Christ. And finally, we'll see that we were saved by grace. Dead in sin, alive with Christ, saved by grace. Grace. So here we go, verse 1. Paul says, You were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. Why death? Why go here? Is this dramatic overstatement? Is this hyperbole or exaggeration for the sake of rhetorical effect? You were dead in the sins and trespasses you once walked? Quite simply, no. This is not overstatement or hyperbole. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. That is, when we sin, what we are doing is we are earning, we are working for our own death. When we transgress God's commandments, when we disobey God's word and his will, we are punching in our own time card and storing up for ourselves a future paycheck of death. Now, 
it's important for us to consider for a moment what exactly is meant by death here in this passage because most of you here this morning are probably thinking, well, I've never been dead and I've never felt even close to death, right? So what is Paul talking about here, right? We have to understand the Bible speaks in at least two ways about death. The first and the most obvious way is physical death. That is when the body is separated from the soul, But the second way that the Bible speaks about death is spiritual death. And this distinction between bodily death and spiritual death arises from the very earliest pages of Scripture. And it's really the only way that we're able to make sense of the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they transgressed God's commandment. If you're familiar with the story, you'll recall that in Genesis 3, after making Adam and Eve and placing them in this beautiful garden with his own presence, God had given Adam and Eve the commandment to to not eat from one tree in the garden, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that when they ate from that tree, they would surely die. And so as the events of that story unfold, we see that Adam and Eve do indeed transgress. They sin, they disobey God's commandment. And whereas we might expect the moment they take that fruit and and eat of it, them to just fall over dead, because God had said surely they would die when they ate from it. But in fact, we don't see that. Genesis 5 goes on to say that Adam will live for another 900 plus years. You see, the death that Adam died when he ate that forbidden fruit was spiritual death, namely separation from God, who is himself life, right? And this is pictured for us in the banishment of Adam from paradise, away from God's presence, away from eternal life. God was the one who had formed man from the ground and breathed life into him and make him a living being in his very own image. And the great tragedy of sin then is precisely that it cuts us off from the eternal true life in God. Spiritual death is the cause of physical death. Adam died 900 years later because he was spiritually dead, cut off from the life of God. Like phones that are disconnected from a proper energy source, they may go for a while on battery power, but they will eventually run out of life. So human souls, human beings who are cut off from life in God may go on living for a while, but eventually we will run out of life. Now, whereas physical death, and forgive me for pointing this out, but physical death leaves you an inert and lifeless body, spiritual death, the kind that Paul is talking about in this chapter of Ephesians 2, has a rather active nature. He says in verse 2, you were dead in the sins and trespasses in which you once walked. You walked in these sins and trespasses. In other words, you conducted your life, you structured your life, you ordered your life and your affections in sin and disobedience. Yes, if you wanna use this phrase, we were the walking dead, actively pursuing disobedience to God. Further, he says, we were following the course of this world. 
We were following it. And this is literally the age of this world. And it's referring to this present evil age, this world cosmos, this order that has ordered itself against God and the righteousness and the life and the light of his kingdom. In the same vein, Paul says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. And this is referring to Satan, the one to whom God has given power and authority over this world to blind and lead astray those who are enslaved and in bondage to death because of their sin. In short, Paul sums up, we were all sons of disobedience, an expression that likens each of our pedigrees and thus our genetic makeup and our very DNA as permeated by rejection of God. And then Paul continues in verse three, bringing that old, dead, spiritually, spiritually dead humanity apart from Christ, back into the ring to throw a few more knockout punches at it, giving us this bleak reality of existence apart from Jesus. He says in verse three, among whom we all once lived, right, no exceptions, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Now, if you are familiar with classical philosophy, then you would know that what Paul is doing in this passage is using the way that was basically used to describe animal life in distinction from human life. Animals just sort of carry out the the passions of their flesh, the, the, the passions, the appetites, the desires, whatever comes into their mind, they just carry that out. So what what Paul is saying here is a person who is dead in sin has an impulse driven not by what pleases God, but simply by what pleases our own bodily and soulish cravings. In other words, we gave no thought to indulging our bodies with inordinate amounts of food and drink. We gave in to the pleasures of sexual immorality and fantasy to satisfy our lust. We pursued greedy love affairs with money and stuff. We kindled our anger and our wrath to burn and fume with hatred against others. We yielded to pride and and arrogance, to that inner yearning to assure ourselves that we are right and smart and everybody else is wrong and stupid. We allowed ourselves to be puffed up with vanities, the empty praise of others. We, We grieved with envy over the good things that God had given to others. We grumbled and complained with discontentment and despair over the good things that God had given to us. You see, you don't have to go looking for spiritual death in a person like Hitler or Mao or some completely uh, depraved sinner. We can find spiritual death right in the sins of our very own hearts. In short, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath therefore fitting to be objects of God's righteous and eternal wrath for sin, which is hell. This is what it looks like. This is what it means to be spiritually dead, walking actively in sin and trespass. And 
As unpleasant and disturbing as the reality of these opening verses, verses one through three, are to us, and though they surely are not gonna serve any attempt at people-pleasing or back-patting flattery for uh, Paul or for me to point these things out to us this morning, they serve as the dark backdrop that more clearly reveal the glorious shining stars of God's blessings to you in Christ. We were dead in sin, but God has made us alive with Christ. People of God, here is good news for you this morning. Gospel news to believe and to nourish your heart and soul with. Those things in verses 1-3 were true of you. They defined you. But God who is rich in mercy, verse four says, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? And here it is, yes, amen. Here it is, right? The focal point of this passage in the brilliantly shining heart of God for sinners. Mercy, love, and grace. Verse four says he is rich in mercy, right? He can spend his mercy on you abundantly, lavishly, opulently, extravagantly, prodigally on the deadest of sinners and his supply is never lessened. He loved us with a great love, a love that is extensive beyond imagination, surpassing all understanding, matchless in amount and magnitude. And what is more, he acted towards you in rich mercy and great love precisely while you were dead in sin, right? That's what is meant by grace here. It's the idea behind grace. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn God's favor, we were spiritually dead. We were working for our own eternal death in hell apart from God. And he gave us life in Christ. God didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. He reached out and he reached down to you in love in Christ, right? Grace is the merciful, loving, saving activity of God in your life when you don't deserve it, and when in fact you deserve the opposite. God did not wait until his people were so nice and so good to send his son to be the savior of the world. No, he came to them while they were sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves and Pharisees and whitewashed religious hypocrites. We have been saved by grace. Now, we're gonna get into this more in a minute, but for now, it's really critical to point out here the way in which you have received your new life. And I wanna draw your attention for a moment to uh, two critically important words in verse five, the words, with Christ, with Christ. We have been made alive together with Christ. See, this grace, this salvation, this transition from spiritual death to spiritual life happens only in direct connection with Christ, right? Salvation does not happen in some sort of abstract religious experience. It is not just another form of self-enlightenment or self-realization that our world is looking for in all of the religions in the world. It's not just uh, another 
philosophy or method of self-improvement to make your, your life better in three or 10 or 12 easy steps. It's, it's none of those things, right? Paul writes that you were dead, but God made you alive with Christ, with Christ. In other words, on Easter morning, the Easter morning, the, the, the morning that Jesus Christ, the, the crucified, the sin-canceling, death-defeating Christ, the morning that he came to life from the dead and arose in glory, so did you. So did you. There was a day, a moment, a precise point in history in which the physically dead body of Jesus resuscitated and resurrected into the newness of life and you, you, if you belong to Jesus by faith today, you rose with him. You were made alive with him. Amen, yes, there is no salvation outside of Christ. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Peter, in his great uh, sermon in Acts 3, said that Jesus is the author of life, the founder of life, the pioneer of life. There is no life outside of Christ. Now, just as we saw earlier that spiritual death is a soul's separation from God, being cut off from God, Now we see spiritual life is the soul's union with God or reunion with God through Christ. We were made alive with him. And just as spiritual death through sin is eventually what leads to physical death, so spiritual death through, or spiritual life through Jesus is what someday will lead us to eternal life in his kingdom. But Paul doesn't stop here. The grace keeps flowing for us from this passage. And he follows this gospel truth that we've been made alive with Christ to its next logical conclusion. You see, not only did God make us alive with Christ, but, verse six says, he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, Follow this train of thought. Paul, in in the first chapter of this letter, had been drawing the attention of his hearers and listeners to this glorious Christ who was raised from the dead by the great power of God, who was exalted and seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, with all things under his feet, and he himself as the head of the church, his body, that is, us. Right? So far, so good. We might expect that to be true of Jesus, who himself is the eternally begotten Son of God, who emptied himself and died on a cross to save and redeem us. Right? It makes sense that Jesus should be exalted in this way. But what is unexpected, or what should be unexpected to us, is that he, the glorious Christ, would reach way down into the lives of spiritually dead hell-deserving sinners, and by grace, share with them the eternal life of Christ. Not only would he give them life, but he would raise them and exalt them to share his glory in the heavenly places. Not with the cherubim at the footstool of God's throne, 
Not with the seraphim flying around, praising his holiness around God's throne, but with Christ at the right hand of God's throne in glory. In the gospel, Christ shares with us dead sinners by grace what belongs to him by nature. That is, eternal life and eternal glory in his eternal kingdom as eternal sons of God. Let me repeat that. In the gospel, Christ shares with dead sinners by grace what belongs to him by nature. That is, eternal life, eternal glory in his eternal kingdom as eternal sons of God. And he did this, verse 7 says, so that in the coming ages he might show you the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ by faith today, by no worthiness or righteousness of your own, then know that God's purpose for you from before the foundation of the world, before he even created the world, was to, by the blood of his son, bring you into his very presence, into the eternal glory at the right hand of his throne in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, so that he can spend all of eternity pouring out the riches of his grace and kindness to you, whoever you are this morning, whatever your life is like, that was his purpose for you. If you are looking for an antidote to the bleak nihilism or the boring materialism or the soul-draining secularism of our, of our modern world that says that you are nothing more than a body and a brain, an accidental blip on the space-time continuum with no inherent purpose or meaning, so you might as well eat, drink, and be merry because we're all going to die. If you're looking for an antidote to that, if you're looking for life, Surely this is it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To us who were dead, spending our lives, working for and earning death, God's heart has always been to lavish on you his inexhaustible riches of grace and kindness through his son Jesus for your eternal good and his eternal glory. That was his plan. That was his purpose. So we've seen that we were dead in sin and we have been made alive with Christ. Paul concludes this unbelievable passage filled with God's grace by pointing out that we were saved by grace. And in this, these last couple of verses, verses eight through 10, Paul gives us one of the most succinct and powerful summaries of how this gospel of God works its way into our life. How did or how can this transition from eternal death to eternal life take place in our life? Verse eight, he says, by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. He is repeating what he's already said earlier in this passage. And again, this is the essence of this passage and of our salvation. Sheer, undeserved grace. And to clarify the manner in which we receive God's grace into our lives, he adds that it is through faith. We're saved by grace through faith. That is, simply by believing in Jesus, by trusting in Jesus, by putting all of our eggs in his basket and keeping none in our 
own. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive this eternal life and glory by faith. To make it clear that it's by faith and not by works, he adds, this is not your own doing. In other words, this transition from eternal death to eternal life, it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Our salvation is a gift. Our new life, our true life is a gift. Gifts are not earned. Gifts are received. Gifts are not paid for. Gifts are bestowed upon us. Or as Paul puts it emphatically at the beginning of verse 9, it is not a result of works. It's not a result of anything that we have done in our lives to earn it, right? Because there's nothing that you can do to go from being a spiritually dead sinner to being an eternally alive son of God with the son of God, Jesus Christ, at his right hand and to enjoy the inheritance of his riches and glory forever. Try as hard as you might, Apart from Christ, as we have already seen, you will always and only be a spiritually dead sinner. We are saved by grace. And I, I really love the reason why God has ordained that this should be so. The, the reason that Paul gives. So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. You see, no one in God's kingdom sitting in glory with Christ at God's right hand will ever be heard bragging about one single thing that they did in their life. Because we're all gonna be way too busy bragging about how merciful and awesome and good and holy and loving God was to us. The, the Protestant reformers uh, summed up this point that Paul's making in a nice little Latin phrase, and many of you might have heard it today. We still use it frequently. Soli Deo Gloria. Soli Deo Gloria. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. No one, Paul says, will boast in their works and the good things that they have done. No one will say, it is by my hand that I have wrought salvation for myself. We are saved by grace through faith. And just in case, you need one more reason to be assured that your good works cannot save you. Paul offers one final consideration for us in verse 10. For, he says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? So, first of all, don't misunderstand the conclusion is not that because we are saved by faith and not by works done in righteousness that therefore good works don't matter and we shouldn't bother ourselves uh, with doing them, right? Quite the opposite. The point in this verse is that our good works can't save us because we ourselves are God's good work. We are his workmanship. We, those who have been saved from death to life through the gospel, are God's work, Good works, then, that we do cannot accomplish something that God has already done and accomplished in the person of his son through the cross and the resurrection, namely our salvation. Our good works have another purpose, which if you're interested, Jesus tells his disciples this in Matthew 5, that we should let our, sh our lights shine before men so they would see our good works and give glory to our Father in heaven. They're not for our salvation, right? Uh, to illustrate this point, how absurd would it be for an iPhone to go around claiming that just because it can do all these awesome things, like it can tell you the weather 
uh, or the time in any city or town in the entire world. Uh, you know, it can get you anywhere you want to go. You can follow the maps and whatever. It can tell you the precise moment when you'll get there, even accounting for traffic. It can do all kinds of amazing things. But how absurd would it be for the iPhone to go around claiming the credit for itself that it had made itself into this great piece of technology? Right? No, we all know the iPhone and all other pieces of technology are the workmanship of someone else. It's created to do some really, really cool and awesome things. It's created for these good works. But the credit and the glory do not go to the phone itself. They go to those who made it. Right? It's the same for us with God. All of the good works that we can do and that we are, should do and we're supposed to do, that we were created to do, are simply a result of the fact that you yourself are a good work of God, which brings him glory. And these things, Paul says in verse 10, were prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them, that we should walk in them. And I don't know if you caught it there, but here it is, we have come full circle from the beginning of this passage. If you remember, we began this passage walking dead in sin and trespasses. And now we end walking alive in good works to the glory of God through the gospel. And I think this is a really uh, helpful and fitting conclusion to this passage because as glorious as all of those things sound about being made alive with Christ through the gospel and being raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places, those things can feel a little distant and maybe impractical to our daily lives and experiences. In, in just a matter of moments, we're all going to leave here. We're going to leave this time of worship in God's presence. We're going to go about our daily lives and, and our routines. And uh, though I'm sure Stanford is a, a lovely and beautiful place, it's not heaven. I'm sure you all would, would know that. So Paul helps us to understand what it looks like for dead sinners who have been made alive and exalted with Christ to live in this present world, to live these present lives in anticipation of that future glory. Right? It's not in comfort and ease and wealth and riches and honor and fame and luxuries and all the things of this life that we might expect would come as blessings of being uh, these exalted uh, sons of God in, in glory. No, it looks like walking in good works the exact same way that it was for Jesus. It is loving, serving, suffering, giving, forgiving, blessing, obeying, seeking God in prayer and fasting, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, caring for the orphan and the widow, giving children a cold cup of water in the name of Christ. In short, all of the things that Jesus taught us to do by word or by example, that is what it looks like to live in this present evil age as saved sinners made sons of God by grace. I want to conclude our, our time with uh, just a couple of takeaways. First of all, if, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus, and as we we're talking about being made alive in Christ, you know that that hasn't happened for you, to, for you yet. Let me encourage you, go to Jesus today. Put your faith in him. Today is the day of salvation and all of these things, all these glorious truths of the gospel can be yours for free, for the taking, through Christ Put your faith in Christ today. 
For those of you who have known Jesus and are walking with him and are his disciple and have been saved, those who have put their faith in Christ, I wanna share with you the, the words of the great fifth century preacher, John Chrysostom, who, who preached a sermon on this same passage to his congregation uh, in Constantinople about 1,500 years ago, and he asked his, uh, his listeners, his congregation, to consider these things in light of all of these glorious truths of the gospel. He asks, if you had 10,000 lives would you not lose them all for Jesus? If you had to enter the flame for his sake, would you not readily endure it? Christ has said, where I am at the right hand of God, there also my servant shall be. If you had to be cut to pieces every day, ought you not for the sake of these precious promises cheerfully to embrace it? Think, where is it that he sits above all authority and power? With whom do you sit? With him, with him. And who are you? One who is dead, by nature a child of wrath. And what good have you done? None. Truly, now is high time to exclaim, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. All glory and honor be to him forever and ever. Amen.